Pat, did you see how many one point games there were with like uh, blown point afters at the end and block kicks and guys, I guess, hooking there? There were so many I couldn't even look look them all up. I wanted to watch like the highlight of each ending, and there were like seven of them. That sounds like something that would be on the uh, the not top ten for Sports Center, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're on the blocking team, maybe, but yeah, if you're on the team that hooked a, a point after and then someone else scored and, and won when their kicker made their point after, yeah, I imagine that'd be not top ten. One of the uh, ones that really popped out at me was Plymouth State being beating Framingham on Saturday. That was uh, I saw that and I was like, okay, so Plymouth's not done being all mass khaki. We'll pretend that mass khaki's a thing, right? You just made that up. I can't. I can't um, vouch for it. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, where we're in our 12th season of podcasting and our 20th season of covering Division Three football. We welcome you to podcast number 212, where we will talk about week seven of the 2018 Division Three football season. It's the edition for October 15th, 2018. We're at the end of the weekend, and I've just about finished retraining myself to write Johnny Tommy instead of Tommy Johnny, and that's how we'll refer to this rivalry for the next 52 weeks at least after St. John's defeated St. Thomas 40-20 to on Saturday. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan, or you're 610 yards of offense, and I'm seven takeaways. Yeah, that's uh, basically what the afternoon that uh, St. Thomas had on Saturday, right? Up in the Natural Bowl in Clemens Stadium, rolling up the 610 yards on offense, but uh, throwing five picks and losing two fumbles as, as St. John's wins that game 40 to 20. Of course, the game, you know, in a, a large sense, overshadowed by the passing of John Gallardi uh, early on in the week. Everybody knew that this would be a game that took on even bigger significance than usual. And I think with that in mind, Keith, you kind of really had to go into it without any preconceived notions of how it might go down, right? You, even if you think St. Thomas is, is uh, hugely favored, you know, so many things have changed on the St. John's side since the last time these two teams met, and then they had that little extra burst of emotion as well. Yeah, and you, you had to imagine that was going to galvanize the team. It was going to bring people to the stadium who maybe were on the fence about about giving a Saturday to this game, although it's, you know, when you're in a rivalry game, it's the one, even more than homecoming sometimes, it's the one that you – playing your schedule around that I'm going to get back to campus for that one. Uh, Almost 17,000 people were in attendance. It was the fourth most attended D3 game on record. And Pat, as you know, five of the top six are Tommy or Johnny Tommy games. There you go. The the retraining continues. So, yeah, I thought, you know, even if you remove the emotion from it, just what we've seen from St. Thomas, not just this season, but over the course of the past several seasons is that they, their team, you know, in, in the mold of the old Whitewater teams where they they uh, give you a whole bunch of looks formation-wise. They sort of beat your team down over the course of a game, and then it starts out maybe it's a close game, and then suddenly St. Thomas is up by several touchdowns. Well, this one wasn't like that at all, and, and I thought that was probably the big surprise. Even though you add the little emotional boost, I, I didn't think that would account for a 20-point spread. No, seven turnovers does certainly a lot to counteract 610 yards. Uh, you and I were both talking about this as we were prepping for our podcast uh, here today at how similar this was to the quarterfinal game in 2016 against UW Oshkosh in which you know St. Thomas turned over the ball a bunch, even a little bit more. And, uh, you know, just a uh, just a, I think uncharacteristic 
but you know, you throw five interceptions. I don't think it matters whether it's you or the other team that uh, forces most of them. It, it kind of is a moot point at that point. And remember back in that uh, that loss to Oshkosh back in 2016, Glenn, there was a quote from Glenn Caruso, the St. Thomas coach, after the game. He basically says, you can't expect to win any game when you turn it over that much. That sort of applies to Saturday's game with seven turnovers, but they only had 362 yards back in that game against uh, Oshkosh, and they lost 34-31. When you gain 610 yards, you you do expect to win, even with the turnovers. But the, the Johnnies came away with the turnovers at crucial times, Four or five drives in the middle of the game that helped them build a 12-point lead at halftime, 19-point lead midway through the third, and then uh, and then they they scored as well. You know, when does they're getting turnovers and punting it right back? I thought that that building the lead helped, and then they had that big turnover where uh, where Josh Parks is going in and they turn what is possibly a a, a touchdown where St. Thomas is going to close the gap to to single digits, turn that into a 99-yard. Um, return touchdown and, and the game's wide open. Same thing happened when uh, St. Thomas hosted St. John's in Glenn Caruso's first season as head coach. The game turned and basically was uh, sealed on a, uh, a very long fumble return for a touchdown. Keith, it would be an interesting week, too, I think, for St. John's because uh, they have St. Olaf coming to town. St. Olaf, of course, is off to a, a really good start this season. And you have to think that they, you know, as, as successful and as happy as they have to be about – uh, not only their offensive execution, but their offensive game plan. I mean, they got the seven turnovers, but they gave up 610 yards, and that's got to be troubling. Well, that makes it easy for the defense to go back to practice this week and say, and not feel like they're hot stuff. You know, they can, um, whatever whatever high they're coming off of, um, you know, they, they honored John. They won the rivalry game. They finally beat St. Thomas for most of the guys on campus. They it, it was first win in, in four years, so they've never done it before. But it's very easy to get refocused when you give up 610 yards, and the coaches will probably remind them of that more than once. On the offensive side and, and for the special teamers, those those guys will have to force themselves to refocus a little more um, and and avoid having a letdown. I think one of you know, one of the human nature parts of football is – once you accomplish something really great, you, you start to believe you're really good. And the better teams kind of clean that slate off every week, reset and say, OK, last week was last week. We enjoyed it over the weekend. Now we're back in here on Sunday. We'll practice Monday, Tuesday, whatever days they practice. And we get refocused now for for St. Olaf. Here's Jackson Erdman's take. He's the starting quarterback for the Johnnies. And this is taken from St. John's post-game video interviews on the field. So I apologize in advance for the audio quality. Came to begin to describe it, you know, just everything that's going on this week for the Johnny Lardy legacy. Huge win, great way to be, great day to be a Johnny. And, you know, can't even describe this. Just look around. This environment, everything, the fans, everyone played their hearts out, left it all out there. And, you know, it just dominated. Where does this rank for you in terms of uh, your best games or your highlights of your career? This is definitely a highlight of the career. You know, great team victory. Defense great, did a great job. Offense we had a pretty good game. You know, it's just fun, just special. One of the best games I've ever been a part of. After the offense kind of struggled last year against St. Thomas, what does it mean to have such a big performance you know, as a unit? That's huge. That's huge. You know, Cole and Josh and all the coaches did a great job just putting a game plan together. We executed it, and it's just fun to see the turnout. Was part of that game plan airing it out more? Oh, yeah. Attack the field on the heels. Everyone kind of has a mindset St. Thomas. Oh, my gosh. Uh, 
they're the top dog, you know, we have the mindset coming in that they're the underdog, we're the top dog, and just, you know, attack them, keep attacking them, get on their heels, what we did, and it, it turned out, it was, it was fun. Keith, always a zoo at St. John's. Uh, I, I was hearkening uh, back this week as I was looking for, uh, you know, good file photos of John Glardy. I, I was reminded of the fact that you and I went to this game together in 2007 uh, before I moved back to Minnesota. We both lived on the East Coast at that time. Kind of a different animal because uh, Glenn Caruso wasn't the head coach of the Tommies yet. St. Thomas had lost more than 10 in a row to St. John's. The game wasn't even St. John's uh, you know, most highly attended game that year. But still, even at that point, before it ballooned into this behemoth that it is now, still a great rivalry. Well, it really turned, of course, when, when Glenn Caruso got to St. Thomas and quickly built them into a power. And around that same time, uh, after John retired, he... St. John's kind of briefly hit the skids and under Gary Foshing, they've quickly rebuilt to, to now where they're a perennial top 10. And in this case, this week, they're going to move into the, the top five, the poll that was uh, released on Sunday. We'll show you that. So not only do you have two, I mean, it helps rivalry game and it helps when the teams are both really good. They both have a chance of putting up their, their biggest win of the season, but also I think the community around Minnesota, and you could probably speak to this, a little better than I can. You got the, uh, you know, both schools, Catholic, you got the city, you have one that's, you know, hour, hour and a half outside, uh, north of the city. Um, so you have the, and you're probably competing for a lot of the same kids. And there's so many of the natural threads to the rivalry there, but also the community just embraces it so much. It's, it's one of the rare D3 rivalries where someone who has no attachment necessarily to either school might show up to watch the game because it's that big a deal yeah that's true i referenced to a couple of people who i know are not sports fans uh about the well at that point i was calling it of course the tommy johnny game uh coming up this week and they completely understood what i was talking about even if they didn't go to saint john's or saint ben's or saint thomas and for those who don't know saint ben's is the women's school that is uh, kind of jointly operated with saint john's the men's school it's also a beautiful place to see a game this time of year. The weather cooperated on Saturday, so everything fell in line. And of course, again, for anybody who was on the fence, the fact that they were um, that they were honoring uh, John, as we've always known to call him, um, you may know him as as Coach Gallardi, but um, that I think being there at that moment for anyone who even has a sort of passing tie with uh, with St. John's, you know, probably convince you to go to this one. Of course, that was the big game on Saturday. Like we talked about in our Friday podcast, you know, podcast 211, there were a couple of games uh, in which some of the, uh, you know, the second place teams in conferences got some clarity. We got to find out, you know, what was going to happen between Oshkosh and Platteville. Uh, we had this uh, really interesting game with uh, Wash U winning at home against Wheaton. We'll talk about that coming up later in this podcast as well. Uh, John Carroll and Marietta kept pace in the OAC, uh, and they will meet coming up on Saturday. And then out west in the Skyac, Keith, this game happens after almost everybody else goes to bed. But uh, Claremont Mudscripts now in the driver's seat in the Skyac. The Stags defeated Redlands 20-10. to um, it will be interesting. You know, there's obviously still several games to go in the Skyac and in the Northwest Conference, but it looks like we could see not the usual suspects in the playoffs out of both of those conferences this year. Yeah, well, well, Whitworth is is out in front in uh, in the Northwest as well, and yeah, it's always neat. I think for 
those of us who don't have any tie to a particular conference or a particular program within a conference to see new faces pop up or bubble up to the top, even if they don't necessarily um, win the conference and take that playoff spot, just new teams, having new teams in the mix and having new teams cycle through is always fun. And I think of the ones you mentioned, Pat, the wash you win at Wheaton or at home against Wheaton was the one that um, came out of the blue the most. And it's the one that as a poll voter, and we talk about uh, teams on the rise and, and teams that fall a little later in the podcast, but it's the one that makes all those results. Um, I mean, they still slot in. Okay. They make sense, but it just makes it hard to vote for any CCIW team, even though we know over the course of history, the CCIW is one of the you know eight best conferences in the country. Um, each one of them sort of each team has some flaws. Um, each team has some nice victories. And so it's, you know, whether it's North Central, Wheaton, Illinois, Wesley, and now Wash U, we have to, to consider Milliken. We thought would be a, a competitive team, but has a had that 63-6 loss to Wheaton. Just don't know which team right now is, is going to emerge from the CCIW. So I thought that result was probably the most interesting one of the weekend. I tell you, I definitely love the 10-team CCIW. It's been a lot of fun to watch so far. And I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by nobody. You could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches who need new equipment. Maybe you can think of a really awesome Division Three stadium that could use a video board or an upgraded, uh, upgraded scoreboard of some sort. You know, if you wanted to reach those sorts of people who are going to be making those huge purchases, you could sponsor the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would wax poetic about your product or your service right here before going to break. So think about it. Drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. And uh, you're missing out because people are listening. And, hey, we're going to have three podcasts this week. Wouldn't you want to be on one of them? It's time for game balls. And my game ball goes to the guy who set the all-time receiving record for one of Division Three football's storied programs. Just a year after St. John's was criticized for not getting the ball to wide receiver Evan Clark often enough, Will Galosh was the recipient of the new look of the Johnny's offense, as well as the recipient of... Wait, what, what? 14 passes for 256 yards? Is this correct? Tang. Look out for that new look St. John's offense. Great game plan for the Johnny's to take advantage of the vulnerable spots and the Tommy's defense in that 40-20 to 20 win. Pat, for my game ball, I wanted to go St. John's defense for the seven turnovers, but seems like overkill. How about UW Oshkosh, though? Essentially cooked, resurrecting its season with a monster fourth quarter against UW Platteville. It was the Titans' first home game of the year, believe it or not, and they gave their fans a treat when their stars came up big to break open a 10-3 game. Dom Tottarello had a 54-yard touchdown run on the second play of a drive. And then three plays later on third and two, Taylor Ripplinger picked up a Sean Suter fumble and returned at 34 yards to make it a 24-3 game. Then the Oshkosh D gets a pick to end a 10-play Platteville drive. Then they ride Mitch Gerhardt's to make it 31-3 on the following drive. And suddenly, a team I was ready to write off looks like a playoff possibility again, although big game next week against UW, uh, UW Lacrosse. In any case, the Titans, for looking like their old selves for at least one amazing quarter, get my game ball.
My team on the rise in this week's poll is WashU, or as we list them, Washington U, or more fully, Washington University in St. Louis. It's that last part that's most interesting, of course, because St. Louis lies a little bit outside the usual CCIW footprint, but big win for the Bears on Saturday as they knocked off 12th-ranked Wheaton 17-10. First win against a ranked opponent since 2010 for the Bears, and it came by holding Wheaton to minus three rushing yards. Once Curtis McWilliams was knocked out of the game late in the first half, that's the quarterback for Wheaton, by the way, uh, the Thunder managed just 131 yards and turned the ball over twice, allowing WashU to score 17 consecutive points. Now, Keith, in my opinion, going from four points to 41 was not enough of a rise in this poll, but I was the only one voting for WashU before this week came around. Well, I'll be honest with you. I didn't jump on the WashU bandwagon, but I saw you and, uh, and Wally Wabash discussing it and i thought maybe i'll take a, a closer look at it uh next week because uh, they are five and one and pat that that stat you dropped is not a hollow stat when you say their their first win against a ranked opponent since 2010 um they played ranked opponents they they had a series with uh with uw whitewater they had a playoff game against franklin and so uh that that is a pretty big deal that stat yeah they had a really tough schedule last year too. remember as an independent and played a, a bunch of teams including uh, including Wartburg. I think, too, just to double back on something you said for a second, uh, when you might reevaluate WashU next week, there that is typical. That happens in the poll. So sometimes there will be a, a reevaluation by other people, or they might look more closely at a team like WashU, especially, of course, this upcoming week, WashU plays Illinois Wesleyan. So there will be, uh, be another really huge data point to consider. Sure. For my riser, it's Muhlenberg. They've yet to play perennial centennial conference power Johns Hopkins, but they're coming off a 21 point win over four and two Franklin and Marshall, a 20 point win at four and two Ursinus, and a three point victory at five and two Thomas Moore this past Saturday. And remember, Thomas Moore is the team that beat UW Platteville. That the Mules are winning in convincing fashion, beating good teams either handily or on the road, was enough for me to move them in front of Trine and WJ, which barely got by this week, and Wittenberg, which barely got by a few weeks back against Denison. There's an argument that a team like Delaware Valley, which took it on the chin versus Wesley and then beat Stevenson in their most notable results, deserves to be where the Mules are. But Muhlenberg's consistent play has me feeling good about ranking them atop that middle teens tier of teams. That's another one of those things you want to say three times fast. Middle teens tier of teams? Yeah, I think three times fast needs to be a new thing for us. What do you think? Sure. Except we don't really have to do it right. You just replay it three times. Middle teens tier of teams. Middle teens tier of teams. Middle teens tier of teams. My team taking a fall this week, Keith, is Trine. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. Olivet has Trine on the ropes on Saturday. It goes for the two-point conversion at home and fails losing 50-49. to 49. But here's my, here's my take on this, Keith. If Trine is really a top-20 team, it shouldn't be threatened by basically anybody in the MIAA like that. Trine gets passed by North Central this week in the overall poll and nearly gets passed by Illinois Wesleyan, and that works for me. I, I wouldn't have minded, actually, if uh, IWU had passed them also. Well, it's interesting because I'm North Central's not even on my ballot right now, and I'll explain why in a second. But I think it's interesting that we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast with the Wittenberg game where they go for two in the fourth overtime against Denison. Well, they're they required win. to, right? So I don't get right. any I mean, yeah. coaching credit for that. No, no, but I mean they they won by two because they converted in overtime and Denison didn't, right? So they win 60, 68, 66. And we talked at the time about that being a game they very easily could have lost. Uh, any play, any fourth down, they don't convert. 
before overtime, any play that goes awry in overtime, uh, and any of the four overtimes, right? And that's a loss. So same thing with this tr- with this game when you're evaluating try and you look at it as it's a win. They found a way to win, and that's positive. But it's not the same as uh, a team that beat another good team on the road two states from two states over like Muhlenberg or not the same as a team that wins by three touchdowns. So I, I think you do have to, to factor that in when you vote for my team that took a fall in the poll, it's Wheaton, which drags North central with it and lessens the quality of Wisconsin lacrosse's biggest win, which was uh, Illinois Wesleyan, which beat beat Wheaton. And I know this is probably all a little hard to follow, but what I'm saying is, the 11 and 12 hole right now is the shakiest part of my ballot based on this chain of results that currently makes sense, but seems to be teetering on total confusion. Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Wheaton's losses to Wash U, which lost to North Central. Illinois Wesleyan beat Wheaton. There are all these other chains of results that make things uh, confusing for, for us voters. And when the when the triangles or rectangles or trapezoids or you know pentagons whatever they all make sense it's fine but as soon as one result doesn't line up with the rest it makes it really tough there there are now these other chains of results like platteville lost to thomas moore which lost to muhlenberg and soon there'll be another chain through uw stout because they play st john's wisconsin whitewater wisconsin lacrosse and that'll help us as voters rely on head-to-head games because i I feel like that's uh generally the most fair way to do it and it's clean when it makes sense. But when those chains start uh, getting, you know, the results don't line up, they can be pretty worthless for, for a voter to rely on. My off the beaten path highlight happens so fast you might miss it, as it only took two hours and 23 minutes for Merchant Marine to win at Springfield 17 to 14 on Saturday. Merchant Marine doesn't run the triple option the way it used to, but apparently they still know how to defend it pretty well as the Mariners held Springfield to 199 rushing yards. Gavin Gartner connected on three short field goals to help lift Merchant Marine to the victory, and it actually made for a really interesting day in Pool B land as the top two contenders for the Pool B spot in the playoffs, Springfield and Thomas Moore, each picked up their second loss of the season. Uh, MIT is clearly the leader for that playoff bid now at 6-0, despite a strength of schedule rating of just 446. Engineers have yet to play Coast Guard, WPI, and Springfield, and those are all currently two lost teams. So that number will rise between now and Selection Sunday. And as a reminder, the Pool B playoff slot goes uh, to somebody in a conference that doesn't have an automatic bid, and that includes everybody in the new MAC and independent Thomas Moore. Well, for my off-the-beaten-path highlight this week, Pat, how do you pick just one? This was a legendary week for one-point games, and I can't review them all. So let's just do this. Olivet went for two against Trine and lost by one. Ferrum and Chicago had kicks blocked by Guilford and St. Norbert. They each lost by one. Albion, Simpson, Puget Sound, they each missed a point after and lost by one. The Britons, it happened in the final 30 seconds. The other two happened with about seven minutes left. Pat, the final minute heroics were amazing too. Hiram scored with 34 seconds left to beat Kenyon. Central scored with 27 seconds left to beat Simpson. Simpson was one of those teams that missed a point after. Earlier in the fourth, WNJ scored with 30 seconds left to beat Geneva in a game that was tied at 43 that ended up 50-43 final. Albion's score was with 26 seconds left. Olivet with 36, 37 seconds left. And Chicago was down 21-7. They scored with a minute two left. And they were one of the teams that had a kick block by St. Norbert. Pat, there are a bunch more games decided by one, two, three, four, five. And they pretty much all deserve to be in this slot. 
Well, that pretty much covers everything. So this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, number 212, season 12, uh, episode 13, released. No? Okay. We'll continue with the tiresome categories. Your categories have become tiresome. My most surprising result for this week is Rockford defeating Lakeland. Bye, 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 and that would qualify as like the most surprising result in any week, really, even here in 2018 when we all knew that Lakeland would be down after the graduation of Michael Whitley. This is still a huge, huge leap for Rockford, which has only won eight games in 11 years in the Northern Athletics Conference, and three of those wins are against Maranatha Baptist, which doesn't even have football anymore. On Saturday, it was Rockford that had the better quarterback, as Delano Mack, sophomore with a big arm, completed 18 of 24 passes for 232 yards and four touchdowns. Jawan Joyner had two of Rockford's three interceptions, and it was out of hand early in the fourth quarter when Joyner had a pick six to make it 37-12 with 11.33 to go. This is definitely the biggest win for Rockford in its football history, certainly bigger than the much more notorious 105 to nothing thumping of Trinity Bible in 2003. I'd actually forgotten about that. Pat, the most surprising result this weekend was the Johnnies beating the Tommies by 20. But in the interest of mixing it up, I'm going to go with UW River Falls beating UW Stout. Stout had been competitive in all but the opener at St. John's, a 27-0 loss, while River Falls had lost four straight. But Stout fumbled on a two-point conversion attempt late in the third quarter, and the 21-19 score held up. Suddenly, the Blue Devils go from outside threat in the WIAC to they better beat Stevens Point next week because the final three games are Whitewater, Platteville, and Oshkosh. Keith, I'm going to go back to quarterback duels for my stat of the week as well. And so while one might rave about throwing seven touchdowns against Capital or five touchdowns against Earlham, it was Franklin's Braden Smith who won the quarterback battle against Triton Tomlin of Mount St. Joseph. I don't know how to pronounce that guy's first name. I apologize. Uh, it was Franklin who won it on the scoreboard as well. They defeated MSJ 42-34. Smith was 19 of 27 passing for 258 yards and three scores while adding two touchdowns on the ground. Tomlin threw 17 more passes than Smith, but threw for 23 fewer yards and just one score. And yeah, no surprise after a, 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 after a year out of the running, Franklin back on top right now in the Heartland Collegiate Athletic Conference. You're going to get a Monday nasty gram from Adam Turr. For not knowing how to pronounce uh, Chaitan Tomlin's name. Uh, or not asking him anyway, right? Because he was he was there on Saturday. No, that's true. And he lives in Cincinnati. For my stats of the week, I'm staying in the heartland, but on the other end. In the game in which Earlham tried to avoid tying McAllister for the longest losing streak in Division Three history, the table was set with one win Anderson coming to Richmond, Indiana. The Ravens, whose largest lead all season had been four points in a win against Defiance, went up 21-0 in the first 35-0 by half and beat Earlham 63-0, holding them to negative 24 yards rushing on 26 carries. So now Earlham, which last won in 2013 against Anderson, gets Franklin next week with the record in play. The Grizzlies are scoring nearly 47 points per game. Earlham has 39 all season. Yeah, it's been a tough season for Earlham, but this is really just one tough season of many. You don't get to 50 consecutive losses overnight. I mean, we've seen teams come back from long losing streaks before, right? Oberlin had uh, famously had two game, uh, two 40 game losing streaks, a 40 game losing streak and a 44 game losing streak uh, in the latter part of last century. <laughs> last century, that sounds like so long ago. One in the 90s and one in the aughts, right? And, you know, Oberlin has never been a conference contender really in the North Coast, but they have a competitive program and they continue to survive. I just uh, I wonder where things are going to go with Earlham here over the course of the next year or so. Well, I mean, I, when you get to to the point where you're setting records for 
for the wrong reasons or, you know, for notoriety or whatever. Um, I, I think that's probably when you get, you draw the attention of the administration and football is the most expensive sport to run. It unbalances your, your title nine compliance because you have so many male athletes and um, it's, a, it's, if it's not producing the kind of goodwill that you want for your school. And, and sometimes, sometimes it still is, even if it's not winning. So I'm not necessarily saying that it can't, um, you know, we've talked many times on the podcast about just being able to bring in uh, male students to, to balance uh, the ratio on campus. Sometimes it's a good thing for a team, but I do think that's something that, um, you know, that, that probably attracts attention from, from administration, from board of trustees, those type of folks where, when, you know, you've, you've lost 50 straight, you're like, what are we even doing here? On the flip side, there are, Pat, as you mentioned, examples of programs who've gone through tough stretches of several seasons and been able to bounce back. A- another good example probably is uh, is Tufts, which was on a 30, 31, 33-game losing streak at one point, and they were playing eight games a season, so the, the streak stretched, um, even though it wasn't, wasn't quite 50 games, it, it stretched over uh, more time than one class had been on campus. And when you have entire classes coming through campus, and guys who've never won in your uniform certainly doesn't do a lot for for morale. But Tufts is now a you know 500 above 500 team in the NESCAC. You mentioned Oberlin, Lewis and Clark had gone went through that struggle that year where they only played four games, and that's a viable program now. So it, it can happen, and you can get through this and, and be on the other side. But it, it certainly is a tough time for Earlham. And, and the reason I put that uh, put them in my stat of the week is because I thought, man, like the one game where they feel like maybe we have a chance. It just went completely off the rails right away. Yeah. And it shows you how far they have to go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, of course, they do have Franklin next, as you said. Then they have a bye week and they host Defiance. And we talked earlier in the season about the struggles that Defiance has. They are currently winless as well. So um, that's something that uh, they could look forward to. I mean, McAllister's been at the top of this record book for 38 years. Um, it is really, it, it takes a long, of course, it takes five plus years to get to 50 losses. Um, and just kind of the way the randomness goes in sports at all, it takes kind of a long time for that just to kind of work its way back around. You know what I mean? They could be at the top of the record book for quite a while. Well, and it's the top of the Division Three record book. Uh, D2 Lockhaven has a longer losing streak. Theirs was 52. And Prairie View A&M is the all-time record holder. That's the FCS program. They lost 80 in a row at one point. So it's not, uh, you know, losing streaks aren't unique to Division Three. And at any given time, there are def- there are, there are 250 programs. So there are several teams in the midst of season plus losing streaks. And there's another one we'll mention here in a couple minutes. But it um, when it gets to this point it, and you're now etching yourself in the record books for all eternity, it's certainly a pretty tough position to be in. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets when we dance. Now is the time on the podcast where we go to Twitter and we're going to take a tweet from uh, Brad Cronin, who goes by SJU Johnny on Twitter. I don't know who he follows, but maybe we'll figure it out by uh, reading this question. Uh, What's the biggest contributor to programs like uh, Mount Unions and Whitewater's success? Geography, coaching, if Mary Harden Baylor has only had a program for about 20 years, how heavily has those have those factors played into their rise in Division Three? Keith, you want to take first crack at this? Sure. I mean, if you just want to go back and listen to all 211 of our podcasts, we've uh, we've pretty much dealt with this question in in perpetuity, uh, and it's it's this is actually perfectly placed because it's like the anti uh, Earlham question, right? Um, I think 
geography is only part of it. Like in the in the situation in Wisconsin where you have uh, UW Madison, and then you don't really have a one AA or D two presence. You know, there are certainly guys who go across the border to Minnesota for scholarships, but you pretty much have um, Madison, and then you have all the D three schools in uh, in the WIAC and the other D threes in Wisconsin. So in, in some cases, geography matters. You know, in Michigan, it's sort of the opposite. Michigan has a uh, not only a major D one, but also uh, Eastern Michigan, Central Michigan, Western Michigan. It's huge D two states with Saginaw Valley, Grand Valley. That's and so by the time you know the, all the high schools get get plucked clean, that the talent doesn't trickle down necessarily to the MIAA. Sometimes geography matters, but if we if we want to use uh, Mary Harden Baylor as the example, I think hiring the right coach obviously made a huge difference for that program because the moment it got off the ground, you had Pete Fredenberg in place. He's been the guy ever since, and and it's been consistent. Having the administrative support helps. There are really, I mean, tons of factors, right? Being in a place having the hiring coaches that have relationships where they can go into the high schools in wherever your recruiting area is. A lot of times it's in state, but sometimes it's across a, a state border and they, they know high school coaches and high school coaches trust them to say, here are my kids who can get into your school and who could contribute down the line because D three for a lot of intents and purposes is a numbers game in recruiting. You're bringing in, you know, 80 kids in a class or with 60 kids or whatever, 50 kids in a freshman class. I don't know what the number is, but they're not all going to be there by the time they're seniors. The cream's going to rise to the top. Some guys are going to leave school, change schools. Some uh, are going to be buried on the depth chart and not play. So a lot of that recruiting really matters. But I think the biggest factor, a long answer to a short question, is probably the coaching. And then I think it's this. Once you start to have a little bit of success, especially in Division Three with the way the postseason is set up, where you, you the top 58 guys on your roster get an extra week of practice for each time they uh, each round you advance. In the case of a Mountain Union, Whitewater, Mary Harden Baylor, they will get to um, they will they will get an opportunity to play five more weeks if you go to the Stag Bowl. And remember the 58 guys travel and play, but everyone practices in the postseason. So you're you're over the course of two Mountain Union seasons, they go to the Stag Bowl back to back. Kids in that program have gotten an extra season of practice over uh, a team that plays in the OAC. Ten games didn't make the playoffs. I think that is a very, very big factor. We've talked about it several times on the podcast before, and I also think success just recruits itself. You think a, a kid goes to Whitewater, you walk out on your visit, you see Perkins Stadium, and you see six championships on the wall. You think that doesn't have an impact on a kid, especially if it, he he was someone who. It's coming off a four and six high school season. And you say, I can come here, find my spot, play a role, get in where I fit in and win championships. That type of stuff really helps in recruiting. And I think those programs get the first pick of the best kids in a lot of cases, unless you have a really dynamic recruiter selling hope at a different program. I think that geography has a has a role in the Mary Harden Baylor as well. The stars at night are big and bright. There were not a lot of Division three football programs in Texas. I mean, I mean, there's still not a lot. Uh, there have been a, a couple added since then, but uh, I think that has part of it to part to do with it as well. Texas, I, I think people have heard they they like their football down there. Their high school football is pretty big, so there was an opportunity to succeed there 
and the school, as you said, Keith was invested, and uh, Pete Fredenberg. And then uh, at Mount Union, you know, uh, Larry Karras, and I'm not sure we need to say too much else there. Um, with Whitewater, I think that there was a case where in previous years, before Whitewater's run started, I think a lot of the big recruits who would go to WIAC schools kind of spread themselves out. You know, some of them went to Whitewater, some of them went to Lacrosse. Lacrosse had come off a pretty successful run of a, of a few years and then had uh, been to Stag Bowls earlier in Division Three history as well. Uh, Eau Claire had been to the national semifinals in '98 and was a uh, you know was a, a playoff contender in years after that as well. Stout went uh, 10 and 0 and went to the playoffs early on in the uh, in the automatic bid system. So there were lots of reasons to spread out. And then you know if you're a kid who's weighing the options, like you said, Keith, I, I think once Whitewater's run started. I suspect a lot of those kids ended up going to Whitewater who might have spread themselves out and raised the level of a bunch of teams in the WIAC. Sure, and, and I bet a lot of that first special group that they had that went in uh, in 2005 to the Stag Bowl and then went back a 9 out of 10 seasons. Remember, Bob Berezowitz was a longtime coach, Brian Borland, longtime defensive coordinator. The coaching staff had been in place for a while, so they had their tentacles out into the high schools in – uh, the northern part of Illinois and in Wisconsin. And so you get good relationships. You can you can um, build that recruiting pipeline. And then once you get a special class or two, you put together a nice team that makes a nice run, you can get the ball rolling. And and we've talked over the years, Pat, about teams that have had a good stretch and aren't able to, to keep it going or they have a good stretch and the, the coach jumps to another division for a new job or, or another school in D3 because you got to strike while the iron is hot and, and you don't necessarily – judge them for that but the coaching staffs that can stay in place for a long time and continue to to bring in good recruiting classes obviously um do do well over time i will say this about geography since you made that point you know howard Payne is in texas uh river falls is in wisconsin yeah. muskingum is in ohio so it, it can't just be ohio texas wisconsin are good football states you know california is a good football state but the sky act doesn't win um championships in, in division three so there there has to be more to it that to it than that and there are a lot of factors i think the right coaching staff recruiting the administration and and, and all that stuff in it but it probably starts with uh with with having that that right guy at the top thanks uh brad cronin for the question uh you can of course reach out to us and uh, ask a question to us we'll answer it on the monday podcast uh, we'll put that call out on Sunday night. I'll say this too. We put a call out on Sunday night this week. We got a bunch of great questions. So we're actually going to have a, uh, an, a an additional edition of the podcast, which is going to be just a mailbag. So we will uh, answer another eight or nine questions or so. So look for that to drop into your feed in uh, within the next 36 hours or so. Every thought of yours. First thought out of the gate, Keith. Uh, Salisbury 6-0, but surprisingly, the Seagulls have the worst strength of schedule of any unbeaten team aside from Eureka. Uh, Salisbury's strength of schedule is hurt, of course, right now by Albright being winless and the fact that they haven't yet played Rowan, Wesley, or Frostburg State. Pat, when's the last time we talked about Hamilton winning a NESCAC shootout? I'm going to say but, never. Yeah, February 1st was my uh, the answer in my head. 
The Continentals took a 38-27 lead on Bowden at halftime. They scored the only 24 points of the second half in a 62-27 win against the Polar Bears, who have now lost 22 straight. Another one of those losing streaks. Misericordia came into the season having won just five games in the history of the program. And on Saturday, the Cougars picked up their fifth win of this season, defeating Lebanon Valley 25-21. This game had been in contention for my most surprising result, but it seemed like I really couldn't consider a Misericordia win that surprising any longer. Meantime, uh, Alvernia, which uh, started its program and is uh, also in Pennsylvania like uh, Misericordia, took it on the chin pretty bad from uh, from Kings this weekend. I understand both of those schools end in the letters I-A. Ooh. Is that like a Friday pod promo? Or a Friday pod flashback? One or the other. Pat, you take out St. John's and St. Thomas and the top eight teams in the poll. All but one of them on the road outscored their opponents on Saturday, 339 to 9. That's Mount Union, Mary Harden Baylor, Brockport, Frostburg, UW Whitewater, and Wesley. Hardly gave up any points, and they each ran up a good 40, 50, or 77. I'm going to go even further off the beaten path and talk about Sunday's game in Division Three. That game saw LaGrange put it away in the fourth quarter and defeat Greensboro 43-16. That game was much less visible than the Friday night game featuring Mary Harden Baylor at Howard Payne, a game that was also changed because of weather. They moved it up a day because of a lightning-heavy weather forecast for Brownwood, Texas. I guess I should point out that that game was won by Mary Harden Baylor by a score of 55 to nothing. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 212, season 12, episode 13, released on October 15th, 2018. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Google Podcasts, for example, that's now a thing. You used to get podcasts on your Google Play player, Google Player, Google Music. I don't know. I have an Android phone. What do I know? Because I use something else. Anyway, wherever you get your podcasts, give us a rating. Give us a review. We would love that. It'll help other football fans find it. You could leave comments for us on the blog page as well. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Thanks to St. John's Athletics for the Jackson Erdman audio used on this edition of our show. And thanks, of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. Keith, you want to just dive into the next podcast, Keith, or you want to uh, take a break? I have no idea what's in it, so yeah. Yeah, folks, we're going to drop another podcast on you tomorrow, so... Uh, even though it's uh, 1.15 in the morning Eastern time uh, for Keith, we're going we're gonna to stop, pop, and roll one more podcast before he can get some sleep. Thank you, Thank you so much, everybody.